Hello, and welcome to IOSH Magazine's podcast series. These podcasts will feature exclusive interviews with industry experts, behind-the-scenes discussions with members, and conversations with future leaders of the health and safety profession. In this exclusive interview, IOSH Magazine's former editor, Nick Warburton, sits down with Professor Dame Carol Black to talk about the value of occupational health services and the emerging issues that will require our attention as we return to the new normal. Well, thank you very much, Dame Carol Black, for giving up your time to to speak to Irish Magazine. Um, I'd like to ask, going back to mid-March, you um, presented at the annual Health and Wellbeing Conference in Birmingham, which I know you've done um, for many years. and at the event, you, you said that occupational health should have a strategic leadership role and remain at the forefront of business operations as the UK learns to live with COVID-19. From your sort of perspective, um, in what ways do you think the pandemic has emphasised the need for and the value of high-quality occupational health services? Well, I think, first of all, when the pandemic came, Many organisations found they didn't either have sufficient occupational health or they didn't have sufficient high quality occupational health. You know, they found they were really wanting because, of course, they needed assessment of risk for their healthcare staff, something which occupational health can do so very well. And they needed a lot of it. Um, And then they needed occupational health professionals to help them know how to reduce that risk. You know, suddenly it was a very different sort of risk. And and when we understood that the people who were most at risk were sort of older people, so older workers, and if your older worker had got any other, you know, chronic condition, let's say diabetes, hypertension, Mm. and let's say they were overweight, you know, all the time, these risks were being added to, and then they really needed to know how to handle all this. And then they also needed occupational health. How did you communicate all this? How do you do really good communication? So, And how do you get that sort of communication right? You may have a, a PR and a department, but you still, this has got to be communicated in a really particular uh, way. And then you needed your occupational health to support the workers. I mean, most people felt more stress, more trauma for those people who had no choice but to come in. And, and, you know, I know that wasn't everyone, but how you were going. So it seemed to me that suddenly the roles that occupational health just were doing naturally or, or and maybe some companies really hadn't used them enough. There was a real demand. And if I understand it correctly, it was pretty hard to sort of service that need. You know, did we have enough occupational health professionals, whether they be doctors or nurses? So I think it did raise the, the need. Yes, no, that's very true. I mean, that you sort of touched on what I was going to ask you in terms of the value that you think occupational health services brought to employers during this very difficult period. Um, particularly in terms of the measurement and support of workers' health. I mean, as you say, it, it was a very unprecedented time um, and they bring this sort of skill set to the table. Can you tell me a little bit more about the value that occupational health services have brought to employers? 
Well, I, I think, first of all, I, I don't want to repeat or go into it, but they've looked at risk. But then they've really been there to advise and support people on how do you support the workers, whatever their individual needs are. Um, and that's a role that I think expanded. And I think it expanded into the mental health field. And I think that was a very good thing because for years I've been saying that occupational health should, for me, start to expand its practice to do the things that are causing most concern to the average worker. And, you know, mental health had been going up and up the agenda uh, for many years. And suddenly we found stress, anxiety, trauma, uh, the fear of, of coming into work if you had to come into work, all of that sort of thing. Um, was was necessary. I suspect also that occupational health became important in really giving some advice on what do you measure, what what do you what, what um, are you keeping, and then occupational health was really needed for frontline workers. I mean, because there would be particularly in health and social care, but also the men who collected our dustbins. I mean, yeah. all people who were essential, the public services, they were really at risk at the front line. And again, I think that sort of meant that occupational health, maybe not themselves, but in collaboration with others, I think it made occupational health reach out and communicate with other bodies and other individuals who were perhaps needed to, to do the whole thing so it's it and and a, a much better collaboration yes I suspect occurred than than had been there before you know before occupation health was rather the place you went to often if you weren't performing that well and you were being sent to occupational health um i think it changed the fact that these were necessary professionals to really get the job done. Yes. You touched on some really fascinating areas there because I, th I think, as you quite rightly have said, um, different workers had different sort of work pressures and, and work experiences. And you, you touched on sort of people working in healthcare and um, sort of people emptying bins. And it's important to remember a lot of people did actually have to sort of carry on working through this very difficult period. It wasn't just, you know, I think it's yeah. very easy for people to look at society think everyone sort of worked remotely which has got its own pressures but it's sort of very broad I mean what do you think have been the most difficult challenges for both those that have been at the front line and that's a very difficult question because it's very broad um depending on the people who are working on the front line continuing to be in the office or um out and about and also people who are working at home where perhaps you've got the the benefits of maybe being able to improve your work-life balance, um, but at the same time also making sure that your managers are not sort of infringing on your work-life balance and you're you know, working longer hours. So tell me a little bit about some of the most difficult challenges that you've seen. Well, I think for people, um, first of all, in the front line, it was essential to, en to, to enable those frontline workers to feel safe. Uh, and, and supported to deal with the difficult situations, especially if you were in healthcare and social care. So that was essential. We needed 
that the employer, and here I think occupational health could be um, valuable to show that they cared about those workers. They cared about their back. They weren't going to desert them. You know, they were doing a crucial job. Um, I think it was also important that occupational health supported workers in their need for the employer to be flexible, to understand that um, you're doing, you need to give frontline workers the time and the support um, and flexibility, you know, to, to, to do their job well and also to recover. Um, and you need to make sure that you were involving frontline workers in decisions. And I think, again, that was another role that occupational health professionals um, could do. I know the manager would be crucially important then, but the occupational health could be there to help support the manager, et cetera. And, and I think if you were doing a frontline job that was dangerous, you needed to feel you were respected and thanked properly for what you were doing. So I think for frontline workers, um, and then, I mean, obviously it's all the problems of later on burnout and how do you enable people um, to come back into the frontline? People feel exhausted. You know, how are you going to support workers to, to come back appropriately and yeah. not expect everybody to come back and be, you know, all, you know, all hands at the wheel? after you've had to be at the front line going through COVID. I think for people who are working from home, occupational health would have come into its own in terms of ergonomics. I mean, you know, suddenly, are you working from your bed? Are you working from your kitchen table? Or do you really have the proper equipment um, to actually work properly from home? And, and Part of that is, is, in a sense, ergonomics and, and physical. And it worried me as people work from home, did you become uh, less physically active? You know, so proper advice about how you do home working. So I think the health and safety executive, for example, would publish guidance on how to do this well. But that was another role where occupational health could be really, really helpful. Um, as you say, what is work and what is home? Are you really switching off or are you, you know, having supper and then going back and switching on the wretched computer and doing yet more work? So learning how to really work well from home. And although it's not the direct responsibility of OAH, I think the fact we've all become much more digitally abled or enabled and people do need equipment. It could be quite stressful if you're a worker that doesn't have what you need. Yes. Well from home. And, and again, um, I, th I think assessing risk and then, of course, the risk of young people who I think probably more than the established worker benefit from being with young people at work yes. probably living in such good um housing or maybe in rather crowded accommodation with other young people or perhaps alone so it seems to me the risk to young workers needs quite a lot of consideration as we go forward i mean you might have started a job and for a year never met anyone that's true it's very true 
Yeah. I, I mean, what does that do to you, you know, you learning to be in a team? I think, yeah, that's incredibly important. I mean, what really strikes me from what you said about some of the strengths of occupational health is the soft skills, which are often overlooked. And as you said about the ability to communicate and the empathy, which I think is so important um, because I think often there's a, there's a big focus on technical skills, but the soft skills have been so underrated. And I think this is what's really come to the fore, hasn't it, in the pandemic? Yeah, and, and also, um, if you like, the, the ability of occupational health professionals to add, if you like, at the strategic level, because they've often not been invited, if you like, to the top table. And, and although in very large companies, so take somewhere like BP or BT, they would have a chief medical officer who was usually an occupational health physician. Those people are the interface between the employer, the employee. They are there understanding the business imperative. Uh, and and, and it, it's often been that bit which is missing. But if occupational health can understand that they are there as much, you know, to enable the business to flourish and be productive um, as, as to assess risk, it seems to me they have a much better chance of being at the top table because yeah. that's what the board is going to be interested in, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really important point. Um, You've touched on this already, and um, what I was going to ask you was from your perspective of the workplace, what have you seen that has most impressed you and also surprised you about how occupational health services have rallied? And I mean, maybe, I don't know if you want to name any particular sort of companies or organisations that you've seen where there's been some particularly good practice um, that, you've, that you've witnessed. Well, I've seen it more through um, really trying to help at the uh, uh, at the sort of advisory level for the NHS because I, I was part of of the of the group that looked at how we would really rev things up to to provide more support to the frontline workers as uh, as the pandemic developed, and then how did we out of that? We realized we needed to grow occupational health in the, the NHS, for example. So I've seen close at hand how occupational health in the NHS, from being there and a, a variable amount and variable quality, suddenly there was an absolute need to get it together and to allow them to grow and to give them the support to grow um, yes. and to enable them to be a much more significant player uh, at the level of, of the decision makers. Yes. I think and hope that even though the pandemic is receding, that the gains we made in, in the NHS of, of knowing now that we had to have a much stronger uh, and a bigger occupational health service um, in the NHS and, and a service that, was, as you say, more able to take in what seems fluffy, but it isn't fluffy. Mental health is not fluffy. No. Or those sort of other things. I'm hopeful that that there will be um, within the health service a much greater attention to occupational health, and, and hopefully they will be listened to more and, I hope, invited 
you know, to be part of, of the more decision-making group. Um, and I know, I mean, my home is, and is in Cambridge, um, and I know that Addenbrooke's um, had um, a really took on a really big role through the occupational health services to pull together um, other uh, uh, groups to really try and provide the services that were needed, but it was coordinated um, through the occupational health department and they grew as a result of that. You know, they being the sort of the hub into which other things were pulled in order to provide a much better service. And I know from what Giles told me that, you know, it made him grow because he had to do more um, and, and do it for some peripheral hospitals. Then that, that was a very good learning curve, but also showed him what they could do in collaboration. That's brilliant. I mean, it sounds like from, from what you've seen that there is recognition from the other key sort of players around the table that occupational health is vitally important. Um, I mean, what, what barriers, if any, do you see that they might need to overcome to, to be more involved in decision-making at a strategic and, and local level? Well, I mean, the first risk, of course, the big risk is as the pandemic subsides, you know, the thought of going back to as we were before, so to speak. Now, in the NHS, as I say, Steve Borman has been leading the charge on growing occupational health um, in the NHS, and that's quite right because Steve did the really important review in 2009. Um, so I, I think those who are professionals in occupational health have got to now be able to stand their ground you know, and if you like, not be pushed back into their little buckets. Yes. It, 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 uh, and into the sort of almost the back room. Um, and that means they've probably got to learn to be perhaps more assertive than they were before. Um, and, and they've shown how important and valuable they can be. So how, and, and you would hope the professional bodies um, would support them to do this. But I think that does require uh, enabling people in occupational health to have the sort of skills that are needed, the leadership skills. And that might, you know, require some training. I mean, I don't believe leaders are just born. I think you do need right. some help and some support um, to lead and know that you can lead and that you 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 have a right to be at that table. I think, again, making sure that as an occupational health professional, you are interested in the productivity of your organization. So for the health service, for me, it's high quality care. Is when I think of what is productivity, it's, it's to get your care as high quality as possible, as efficiently as possible. And so, and that's what matters to the board of the hospital. So uh, for occupational health to really understand what moves, if you like, the top of the house, what they're going to be looking for, and then to say, well, how can we contribute to that and make sure you know we can contribute? No, that's brilliant. I think that's really, I mean, it's interesting because if you look at 
all sort of industries, not just sort of the, the NHS. It is really about understanding how the organisation works and what its priorities are and, and how yeah. you can you can benefit the greater good within within that organisation. Um, you've talked a little bit about sort of the, the risks as we sort of start to learn to live with the pandemic. And I mean, hopefully, fingers crossed, the worst is behind this. Um, as we move sort of forward, and I know it's very tentative, um, with you know the way the world's sort of moving um, into sort of like a new a new age um, of post sort of pandemic, although in some places in the world I think it's it's obviously not that not the case. Um, what do you see as being some of these sort of emerging health issues that will require our, our attention, um, and how prepared do you think we are to deal with them, and what needs to be done to ensure that we can manage them effectively? Um, well, I think pretty high on almost most employers list is mental health. I think that has become, I mean, you could say health and well-being in general has definitely risen up the agenda. And you you can see that in, in so many ways. I think CEOs and boards now know the health and well-being of, of their workforce is important. Even if they thought it was before, it's now been shown to them really pretty vividly just how important it is. And, and I do think there's some physical health problems to think about, but, but I do think mental health in all its sort of iterations, um, because I think for so many people, um, the pandemic made them think about their lives. You know, what did they want from life? Were they in the right place? Were they in the right job? Did they want to change? You know, it made you realize the fragility of life. Um, it, 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 it sort of was a big shock to everyone. And therefore, I think there's not only people at work who will be, you know, under different sorts of, of, of mental um, stress, but there'll also be people as we know. I mean, whether you call it attrition, whether you call it the great resignation, whatever you call it, there have been quite a lot of people who said, I don't any longer want to do that the way I've been doing it. And um, some would say, well, if my employer can now adjust what I was doing, maybe I'll stay with that organisation. But I think this great uncertainty and churn um, that make people very anxious and, you know, everybody wants certainty. But I think we're going to have to learn to live with uncertainty as far as the labour force is concerned. For quite some time, because as I say, I think people have been reevaluating what they want for themselves, their families, the type of life they want to lead, and the knowledge that they perhaps do have a little bit more bargaining power now. Yes. So I think I think that is is important. I think then there's also the fact that the pandemic really highlighted poor health. I mean, whether we like it or not, it highlighted obesity. Yeah. And we know, again, whether we like it or not, that we have too many people who weigh too much in this country to support very good health. And we know how much more COVID liked people who were um, overweight. And if on top of that, you've got diabetes or you've got hypertension, it brought right to the fore. Um, chronic conditions 
in the workplace and how many of those people post-COVID felt they couldn't return to work. I mean, far less, but definitely recorded, and you could read about it, was the increase in alcohol. You know, we've seen some groups were, were again, drinking more, um, possibly, again, um, and maybe more people resorting to pharmacological agents just to sort of to, to take them through this journey. For some people, they were more physically active, but for some, they were less. Um, I think women, possibly women workers, possibly suffered quite a lot because they were balancing a thousand and one things, schooling, cooking far more meals, home care, and trying to hold down a job and some of them going part time or giving it up. So are they going to get back in, in, into the work, um, into the workplace? Um, and then the sheer, physical environment of the workplace, you know, the knowledge that, that this is an airborne virus and therefore suddenly organisations having to think about ventilation, yes. and circulation of air, etc., and people being aware of that. And then, of course, people being reluctant to commute. So yes. I think there are lots of, of things around um, the workplace that are no longer certain and I do think our our leaders have got to know how to lead in uncertainty and I think for a lot of middle managers they need support and help to really be upskilled to deal in a much more personalized way with the people they manage you know I don't think people want to be treated as just all the same any longer I think what the pandemic has done has shown that individuals have individual needs, both in their personal lives and in their working lives. And that puts a bigger responsibility on managers um, who I think have got to spend more time understanding the individual needs of their team members. I think that's brilliant. I mean, it, I mean, I think you've really knocked it on the head because you're right. We, in a sense, we've got, um, a situation where it requires so much adaptability now with the way the world's moving forward. And, and I think you, the fact that you talked about individual needs, I think this is the first time in the workplace we've had so many different generations in the workforce who are going to have their own particular interests, particularly young workers who don't want to have the same things that their grandparents who are still in the workforce um, expected. So it does require an adaptability from the employer and, and you're right for the, the manager. I think it is going to require this adaptability. Um, I'm assuming that will require perhaps in some cases some, some training to, to make yeah. sure. That oh, yeah. And support because, you know, managers themselves um, have their own health needs. And there's some quite interesting uh, research out there that was there even before the pandemic that shows that the health and well-being of a middle manager affects the health and well-being of the people they manage. Okay. And certainly the health and well-being of the people you manage has an effect upwards. I mean, it's bound to. It's it's a reciprocal um, relationship. So I, I, I don't think we know where all this is going to end. And, and you know, where's hybrid working going to? And I, I think people 
try to predict, but I think we've just got to live with the next year to see what what do people feel comfortable with. Um, then do they miss going into work? Maybe they won't. Maybe they will. But if it, it, how then if you're going to have to work this hybrid system, are you going to ensure that you've really got a team? If some of that team is at home and some is in the workplace, it's all too easy to have a two-tier system. And people who have to come in because that's the job, you can't do the job at home. It's not unreasonable. They might feel quite resentful of people who can be at home much more. It's It's not necessarily an easy thing to manage. No. And I suppose also, I mean, everyone's situation is very different. Uh, I mean, people who, some people who work at home, um, as, you've, as, you've, as you've mentioned earlier, they're not working in the most ideal circumstances. Um, for others, they've managed to save a lot more by not needing to commute in. So, it, you know, there are going to be all these challenges that we need to sort of um, to look at as we go forward. And I think it's very sensible, as you've recommended, to sort of to see how things go and to sort of adapt to the circumstances. And, and realise, you know, you might go in and out of people, try different um, combinations of hybrid working. You know, it may be it may be that this at the moment you do two days a week and then you go to four and then you come back, I don't know, to two. It, it, it's that ability of the manager and your employer to trust you Yes. If if what you say to someone, I only trust you to be working if I can see you in front of me, that doesn't fill the employee with uh, with feeling that they're a valued, trusted member. Yes. You can understand the anxiety of, of the employer who's always before done it one certain way, and and and, and you know it's 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 a new thing um, to get to get used to and. Uh, and maybe I I have no idea. Do we have to rethink what occupational health will need to look like in five years' time? You know, will, will the requirement be somewhat different? I think that's a fantastic place to to end the podcast. Um, thank you so much, Dame Carol Black, for giving it the time. Um, and um, yes, thank you um, from all of our um, readers as well. Take care. Thank you. Pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. See you next month for another conversation on all things health and safety.